0: So just uh, a few nights ago, I was putting Isaiah to bed, and there's always this issue with Isaiah. He always wants Mary to take him to bed, which I don't blame him. She's a lot cuter than I am and probably more cuddly, but uh, I just told him, I said, look, buddy, I'm taking you to bed tonight. If you're not going to have me take you to bed tonight and lay with you and pray with you, then you can just put yourself to bed, right? And so... He said, you're not in charge. Jesus is in charge. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, But I said, hey, Jesus put me in charge of you, so you need to listen. And then we were praying, and he interrupted me as I was praying. Hey, pray for my anger, he said. So I I prayed for his anger. Yeah, it was great. Well... uh, (laughs) Here at Abundant Life, this fall right now, we're in our election process. This is something we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, and this is something that's important to our congregation because as the leaders of this church go, this church is going to go. And so we take this process seriously, and it's important that you guys are engaged with it, that you're praying about it, that you're thinking about it. Uh, in terms of who you'll nominate, remember today's the last day to nominate uh, men for the open positions we have for elder and deacon. And again, it's as simply as writing down the name on a piece of paper and specifying which position you're nominating them for. So, uh, And then you give it to me or Jim or to Justin. So we're hoping you're thinking about this, you're praying about it, and then you, there's going to come a time then when we'll actually vote on the, between the men that were nominated. We'll, we'll seek God's uh, counsel for who He wants to be in these positions. And one thing that we're doing, and we'll conclude it today, is looking at these roles of elders and deacons. I've never taught on this subject. Actually studying this topic has really been uh, a tremendous growing experience for me, and we're already starting to look at how we can do things better, um, especially on the board and, and with the elders. We just had an elders meeting this past Wednesday, talking about some of the stuff I've been teaching on. We're going to be meeting uh, weekly for the foreseeable future to implement some some other things, and so I'm really excited about that. Um, and so, what we've learned in the sermon series that I've titled "Leading the Church," a short study on the roles of elders and deacons, is we've learned that the elders are the overseers of the church. They're the ones who are leading the church, and their job is to know you guys. Their job is to lead you well. Their job is to feed you God's word through through teaching. Their job is to to, to pray for you, and their job is to protect you from false teaching and from wandering off from Jesus. That's the elder's role as overseers of this church. And then there are the deacons, and the deacons are these official servant officers of the church that have the responsibility of making sure that your needs are met, your practical needs, right? And so if there's somebody that's in this room that is hurting financially or hurting in some practical way, um, we want to know about that. And we want to see if we can come alongside of you to help you. And the guys to talk to you about that... Are Justin and Tom and, and Rick, Tom Skelly, Justin Shackle, Rick Lutz, but we want to be that church that cares for our flock well. Um, so we've looked at you know who these elders and deacons are, what they do. Now the question is, well, who can serve in these roles? Can anybody just be an elder? Can anybody just be a deacon? And so what we're going to do uh, for the last message in this sh- series is we're going to look at these qualifications that the scripture uh, really outlines for these roles. So pray with me and then we'll answer these questions in terms of who can be an elder and who can be a deacon in the local church. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this morning. I'm so glad and I'm often reminded as I'm preparing messages for the series that you are our good shepherd and we leaders here at Abundant Life are just your under shepherds. Um, Lord, I pray that as we look at the qualifications for um, elders and deacons that uh, you would help us to see uh, just how important it is to have qualified men in these roles. <laughs> Lord, I pray that as we understand the qualifications, that, that uh, you will help us to, to know who we should be nominating and who we should be voting for. We love you. It's in your name, your mighty name, of the mighty name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. All right. So the Bible does have quite a bit to say about who can be qualified to serve as an elder. In fact, what I find interesting is that the New Testament talks more about the qualifications for elders than it does about the roles and responsibilities of an elder. And there are three different Passages that talk about the qualifications. So let me read them to you and then we'll, you know, unpack them a bit. So 1 Timothy 3 2 through 7 says this A bishop, and, re- and re- remember that a bishop, a shepherd, elder, pastor, all synonymous in the New Testament. A bishop then must be blameless. The husband of one wife, temperate, sober minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach. Not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil." Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. And then Titus 1, 6 through 6-9 is another section of Scripture that gives us some more qualifications, which are very similar to the ones in 1 Timothy. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination... For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self willed, not quick tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober minded, just, holy, self controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught. That he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. And there's one other uh, passage in the New Testament that gives us some qualifications for elder. First Peter five one through three says, "The elders who are among you, I exhort, I whom a, f- a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly." not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but examples to the flock. So if you were to look at these passages, the qualifications for elder really fall into three broad categories. The first one is moral and spiritual character. The second one is abilities. And then the third one is spirit-given motivation. So I want to look at each one of these in turn, starting with the spiritual and moral character of an elder. Let's check it out. Now, when you think of somebody as an elder that's going to be leading this church, your mind, like my mind, naturally goes to, it may go to like mine does. All right. Um, are they managers? Do they have administrative abilities are do they are they good communicators? Are they able to set vision and rally people around it? You know those sorts of things can they think strategically? My mind goes to those kind of a skill set that that uh that an elder would need to have you know the abilities that they would need to have and Again, the New Testament is more concerned with the character of these men than it is with the abilities and skills that they have. Not that those aren't important, but here's the thing. If you think about it, you can have a highly gifted leader, very talented, but if they do not have godly character, they're a disaster waiting to happen. And it's only a matter of time until this highly gifted, talented leader causes a whole bunch of destruction in the church because they don't have the godly character to direct that talent and that ability. Um, I work with a guy out in Oregon, and I have phone conversations with him, and he works with a whole bunch of churches all over the country, and he says, that and I just had a conversation with him Friday, and he mentioned this on our phone call. He said one of the, one of the big mistakes that he sees a lot of churches making across their country is they put um, guys in positions of leadership before they are spiritually mature and ready for such a position, and that causes a lot of problems for the church, but also for this person that they've put into this position who isn't ready for it. Um, It sets them up for for failure, and so what should be the content of an elder's spiritual and moral character? Well, uh, 1 Timothy 3, 2 through 7, and Titus 1, 6 through 9 say that they should be blameless, Now, other translations like the ESV and the NIV say that they should be above reproach. And I tend to like above reproach better because I think when we hear the word blameless, we have a tendency to think sinless, right? Um, Nobody is sinless except for Jesus Christ. And therefore, there's going to be no elder other than our elder brother, Jesus, who is is going to be sinless. So an elder doesn't have to be sinless, but they do need to be above reproach. Well, what does that mean? Well, 1 Timothy and Titus chapter um, three, or chapter one, they unpack that for us. So a person that is above reproach, I would say just a a general definition is that their life displays a real high degree of Christ-likeness, an exemplary degree of Christ-likeness. One author writes this, being above reproach means that an elder is to be the kind of man who no one suspects of wrongdoing or uh, immorality. People would be shocked to hear this kind of man charged with such acts. Alright, so First Timothy, he, in this uh, chapter of First Timothy uh, 3, Paul, he goes, he goes on to unpack this kind of above reproach, what that means. Uh, he starts out by saying that this person must be a husband of one wife. Now the Greek literally is a one woman man. Our elders need to be a one woman men, and they need to be one woman men and that means that they need to be committed to their marriage relationship. They need to be intentional about developing that and helping that grow and blossom. It has to be a priority for them. You know, how a man takes care of his bride is a good indicator of how a man is going to take care of Christ's bride, the church, right? And so it makes sense that this man be a one woman man he also must be self-controlled self-control is a fruit of the spirit it's the ability to have discipline in your life and even though everything in your body wants you to go this way you have the discipline the self-control to say no to that because it's not the best course of action and you're able to stay on the path that God wants you to stay on um uh, one area in particular that the scriptures mention that an elder must be self controlled in is in the use of alcohol. They need to be able to, if they choose to drink, drink, they need to be able to have a drink without becoming intoxicated and using it in ways that are unhealthy. Um, Um, uh, An elder needs to be sober-minded. An elder that's above reproach is sober-minded. To be sober-minded means to be prudent. It means to be sensible. It means uh, to be reasonable. You know, it's the kind of moral and spiritual character that works itself out in good judgment. It's the kind of character that, that, that allows a person to see things as they really are, to accurately view themselves, to accurately view God, to understand how their actions and their words affect other people and how people will gen- would generally respond to different circumstances. To be sober-minded and to be prudent also means that you're conscientious about how present circumstances are going to affect future circumstances. And you're able to see the big picture of things without getting lost into the day-to-day details. A man that is above reproach, he is of good behavior. Again, not perfect behavior, but good behavior, meaning that a man is respectable. He's known by his congregation as one that has a high level of moral and spiritual character, and he's demonstrated it time and time again before the congregation in good times and in bad times and in difficult circumstances. A man that is above reproach is hospitable. A hospitable man is a person who, you know, when somebody walks in through these doors into this room, they're excited to see a guest, visitors, people coming in, and they go out of their way to make people feel comfortable. A hospitable man will have people in their home on a regular basis. And when people go to their home, they walk away leaving that gathering feeling loved and cared for. You know, if a man is unable to care for and serve a small group of people in his home, if he's not hospitable in that way, how is he going to be hospitable to a whole congregation of people? A man that is above reproach is not violent or quarrelsome, but gentle. You probably know and have run into individuals that love power you ever worked for a boss that just loves power? I have at the Olive Garden. Um, this guy loved power, and he loved to exercise it, right? Some people are that way. It's their, high, their way or the highway, right? Some people, they like to lord it over others. They, they insist on their way, and they'll, they'll pursue their way until they get what they want. And if they hurt people in the process... They kind of just view it as, well, that's just part of leadership, and they remain largely unaffected by the hurt that they have caused others. These people are often poor listeners and are constantly talking over others to express their opinions. That's always fun to be in conversations when that's happening. They're often hot-headed people. They, they wear their emotions on their sleeves. They can get angry and argumentative really quickly. They're ticking time bombs, fire starters. You just don't know what you're going to get, so tread lightly. They hold grudges, hold on to resentment. One author writes this. I think this is good. Elders must be gentle giants. Gentleness does not mean weakness or cowardice. Gentle elders exercise their authority with the tenderness of a shepherd and the sensitivity of a loving father. I once watched a television program in which a tortoise crawled up next to an elephant that was drinking at a watering hole. The elephant looked down and gingerly moved the tortoise to the side with its toe so that it wouldn't crush the reptile accidentally. I was amazed to see that massive creature take such care people are similarly amazed when they experience gentleness from a church leader. A man is to be above reproach in terms of being free from the love of money and not fond of sordid gain. I did not know what sordid gain was at all. Had to look that one up. But this idea is if they're free from the love of money, they're not going to be making decisions based on what's best for the bottom line what's most financially advantageous. They're not going to measure their own personal value by their net worth. They're not going to be so crazy about working all kinds of hours so that they can live this luxurious lifestyle and then have no time for the church. They're going to appreciate nice things but not have to have them. They're going to be generous people that regularly give their money to others and want to see the church be generous, especially to the poor and needy. And they're not going to measure the church's effectiveness by how much money the church has in a savings account, right? You need men in the elder position that are free from the love of money and also free and from this this need to for sordid gain, which... It means dishonest gain. So, elders can't be people that are looking to take advantage of others so that it will benefit them some way personally. A man who is above reproach also has a good reputation with outsiders. He needs to be a man that is respected in the community that he lives in. I mean, think about it. How would an elder lead the church that he's a part of to be a witness? To this amazing gospel message and the amazing reality of the most amazing being Jesus Christ in his own backyard if the people in his own backyard don't have any kind of respect for him a man who is above reproach must not be a self-willed person a self-willed person is an arrogant person a self-willed person is a self-reliant person A person that overestimates their abilities. A person that is prideful and arrogant and cocky and seeks glory for themselves. But a man who is above reproach is the opposite. He's God-reliant. He's seeking. He wants glory for God and glory for others. He's God-dependent. He's humble. I like this explanation of a humble person. They lack excessive ego or concerns about status. Humble people are quick to point out the contributions of others and slow to seek attention for their own. They share credit, emphasize team over self, and define success collectively rather than individually. The man who is above reproach also loves what is good. The man who's above reproach just loves to see good things happen. They set their mind on what is pure and lovely and beautiful and honest and noble and true. They have a desire to grow in their love for what is good. And they don't just value and appreciate good things. They want to actively be a part of good things being accomplished. We need elders like that. The man who's above reproach is also just. In other words, he really values being fair. He values um, seeing the world operate with justice and gets upset when he sees systems established in the church and in the world that are unjust. And then a man who is above reproach, finally, he is holy or devout. And a devout person is committed, committed, to Christ. They are unwavering in their commitment to Christ. They are um, men who have decided to follow Jesus and say there is no turning back for them. And they continue to pursue intimacy with Christ irrespective of feelings and desires for Christ that fluctuate and come and go. So these are the moral and spiritual qualifications for an elder. No big deal, right? Not very important. (laughs) One other thing. They must not be a new convert. So in addition to being a one-woman man, self-controlled, sober-minded, good behavior, hospitable, free from the love of money and desire for sordid of gain, and having a good re- reputation with outsiders, not self-willed, lovers of what is good, just, and devout. They must not be a new convert. They must be a spiritually mature, seasoned disciple of Jesus Christ because 1 Timothy 3.6 warns us this. If they are a new convert they're going to be extremely susceptible to becoming prideful if too much responsibility is given to them too quickly. So that's the moral and spiritual character that an elder must possess. But what about the skills and abilities? Believe me, these last two uh, categories are going to go a lot more quickly. So what abilities and skills do they need to have? Is it sufficient enough for an elder to have all this moral character that we just have outlined, but not have any skills as a leader. Well, just as it's true that if you have a a godly, or if you have a really talented man that doesn't have godly character, a whole bunch of destruction is going to happen at at some point. And And if you take it to the extremes, that's how you get the Hitlers of the world. It's just as much true that if you have a godly man without skill, they're going to be an ineffective leader. So uh, an elder has to be a combination of both high character and high competency. High character, high ability, high skills. What are the skills that the elders need to be able to excel in? There are two of them. The ability to manage their household and their ability to teach the word of God. Let's look at the first one, the ability to manage their household. 1 Timothy 3, 4 and 5 says this. One, an elder must be one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. How will he, if, for if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? And then Titus 1, 6 through 9 says that an elder must have faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. So these verses tell us that an elder must be able to lead their family well, which means they have to have leadership skills to lead their family well. They have to have management skills to be able to lead their family well. And this all should be evident within the context of his family life. Is his home a home of order? Is his home a home of peace? Is his home a place of joy or is it just one of friction, dissension, chaos? Does his children love him? Do, do they re, does he relate to his children well? Does do they have their d- does this man have their respect? Are his interactions with his children full of grace and truth? Is he in spe- intentional about spending time with his children does he teach his family the word of god are his family's finances in order you know it's it's possible for a man to do everything right as a husband and a father and still have wayward just rotten kids right i mean that is extremely possible right so that can happen there are plenty of parents um, that do everything right, and then their kids are just knuckleheads, right? But let's say an elder has five children and four of them are just wrecks. Well, that's a cause for concern, right? And that's something f- to be looked at. Um, Paul's argument makes sense here, doesn't it? If if a person is unable to manage their household well, which just consists of a few people, how on earth are they going to lead and manage a church of 150 people or more, right? Another ability that an elder must have is they must have the ability to teach. Um, First Timothy and Titus, they're both clear on this. They have to be able to communicate God's word. They have to be able to hold fast to it. They have to be able to instruct others in it to be an elder, an elder will love God's Word. An elder will study God's Word. An elder will read books to help them understand God's Word more fully. They'll get excited about God's Word. They'll allow God's Word to direct their choices and their decisions. It'll be the lens that they kind of see life through, the glasses that they see life through. And they'll have this desire, and they'll get excited about The sheep knowing God's word and seeing how that word of God transforms the sheep's lives. For a man to be an elder, they have to have certain moral and spiritual character, certain skills and abilities of teaching and managing a household. And then they also must have the third category for an elder is they must have a spirit given motivation. 1 Peter 5, two says this, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. So Peter, Peter here, he makes it clear that an elder must have a drive to be an elder, to shepherd the flock. He must have a desire to To fill this role. You know, if an elder just feels obligated to be an elder and just is doing it because there's not a whole slew of people standing up to do it, and so I I should do it, I better do it. If that's it, this job is too big and too important for for that sort of thing. That person is going to become unhappy, impatient, fearful, and ineffective in their role as an elder. So we need men that um, have a motivation to want to shepherd the people of God. And so we need to have elders that have high moral and spiritual character, have abilities to teach and to manage their own household well, people that that have the desire to serve as elders. That's what our church needs. To be all that Christ wants us to be here, that's what we've got to have. Without such leaders, what ends up happening is the church just goes into a downward spiral and engages in all all kinds of unhealthy behaviors and practices. We see that in the church in Ephesus in the scriptures. Paul had to get rid of a couple leaders because of issues there in in the church at Ephesus. And check this out. You know why this matters so much and why I spent three, three three Sundays talking about this? 1 Peter five says in verses two, four, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you. And when the chief, well, you know what? There's a, sorry, let me go back. Acts 20 verse 28 says, says this, uh, Paul tells the elders at Ephesus, he says, you're, um, Do your shepherding well, basically, is what he says, because you're caring for the people that Christ bought with his own precious blood. That's why this matters. And if we're going to be a church that's that's able to storm the gates of hell, we've got to have the right people leading the church. But here's the good news for us elders, and this is something that I have thought about, and it brings me some comfort and joy. 1 Peter 5 2 and 4, 2 through 4 says this Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. So, for the, the faithful elders, they are, when Jesus returns, they're going to receive a crown of glory from Jesus himself. And it'll be so worth it when we receive that glory that's coming to the faithful shepherds of the church, the reward for our labor. Now, really briefly, what about deacons, right? So I just spent a lot of time on elders. What about deacons? So, do deacons, since they have just a more specific duty to care for the practical needs of the church, do they need to be as qualified as elders or can they just kind of be anybody that, you know, wants to kind of pitch in and help out? Well, uh, they have to be extremely qualified, actually. Um, an author by the name of Alexander Strouch writes this. I think this is very good. To think that deacons don't need to meet qualifications for office because they are not as essential to the church as the shepherds is a big yet common mistake. The error, this error demonstrates how little people understand about the importance of deacons to the local congregation. Indeed, the deacon's significance to a church is clearly displayed by the fact that their qualifications are similar to those of overseers. So check this out. Like elders, deacons, according uh, to 1 Timothy 3, they have to be above reproach by being one woman men. They have to be good managers of their household and children. They have to be not fond of sordid gain, not addicted to alcohol, holding fast to the truth of the Christian faith. And in addition to these qualifications that they share with elders, deacons must also be reverent, which is another way of saying a man worthy of respect. They must not be double-tongued, which means they don't say one thing to one person and say a completely different thing to the next person. Can you imagine if you had a deacon who is double-tongued, who uses his words to deceive people and be insincere and manipulative? Can you imagine that person being in charge of making sure that people's practical needs are met and they're handling the money of the church? What a disaster that would be. And so deacons are still held to a very high standard of Christian Living, and they too, must have management skills to manage their household well and to manage the practical needs of the the congregation um, and so this all matters so much, and I go back to what Paul told the elders at Ephesus, because elders and deacons are going to be overseeing and leading the people that God purchase with the, the shedding of his blood. This is so critical and important. I mean, they're caring for the family that that Jesus Christ, by his blood, uh, went to the cross to give birth to. The community that he created through the pouring out of his blood. That's why this matters. And so what we're going to do right now, um, we're going to remember what Jesus did in order to purchase you guys sitting in this room. And we're going to remember that we would be utterly lost in sin, in death, with no future hope if it weren't for God in the person of Christ coming and dying for us and defeating death by being raised from the dead so that we can share in that victory as well. Um, Praise Him for that. May we never forget that. Um, As we were talking about in adult Sunday school, school this morning, may that truth of the gospel so be pounded into our hearts that it radically affects everything we do in life, how we handle our money, how we handle our relationships, how we handle our marriage, how we handle our children, how we handle our work and our vocation. May we all be uh, just gospel-driven. May our lives be gospel-shaped. Let me pray, and then I'll invite the elders and the deacons uh, to come up. Lord, I thank you for you. And I'm so grateful that uh, you love us, that you care about us so deeply, that you wanted to spend forever with us. And that nothing would stop you from pursuing us and reconciling us into a relationship with you. You love us. Your death and your resurrection proves it. And that's why we can be comforted by the fact that we will have everything we need. Because if you wouldn't, if you, if you didn't spare your own son for us, then surely you're going to give us all things. And Lord, I'm so thankful that that includes a promise to us elders and deacons who feel called to this crazy, important task of being your under shepherds. Thank you, Lord, that you're with us, that you go before us in him ascend, you go behind us, you lead us. There's no way we can do such an important job if it wasn't for your promise that you would be with us. So we thank you for that. Lord, I also thank you again for the men that have served in these roles over the, the years of this church's existence. I thank you for the current men that are serving. You know, we are blessed to have qualified elders and deacons we thank you for them Lord. I pray that you would raise up more men that would feel this burden, this call to see your flock, your people healthy and thriving, engaging a world that is so confused, so mixed up, so full of hurt, so full of sh- so so full of shame and guilt and isolation. Lord, You are the hope of the world, and your church, your body, is the vehicle by which you want to extend this hope to broken people. I want in on that. I want to see this congregation be awesome at that as you guide and direct us through your spirit. Lord, it's this act that we're about to partake in that centers us and unites us. Your shed blood. May we be thinking about the stripes you received for our healing. May we think about how you were lied about. May we think about how you were spit on, how you were beaten and abused, how you were put in a place of humiliation before crowds of people, though you did nothing wrong. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.